listening to the Carrero Podcast. I am Malia Hoffman, and I'm here with Fred Ramirez. Today, our guest is Dr. Jorge Velastegui. Dr. Jorge has worked in public education for over 24 years, teaching in elementary school, high school, and higher education. He has incorporated educational technology to transform what learning looks like in the classroom. As a child of immigrants, he has dedicated himself to working in low-income Latino communities to help students reach their maximum potential. To add him to your social media outlets, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Jorge RV. And that's at D R J O R G E R B. Hey, Jorge, thanks so much for joining us today. So let's just start off right away and tell us a little bit about how online school is going now that uh, COVID 19 has put us all online. Hi, Malia. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's definitely been kind of like a weird couple weeks, and uh, we went online uh, about the middle of March, March 16th. So I think for my class, I had done a lot of online work before. We had done a lot of, my kids were experienced with screencasting, and we had been doing a lot with flipped instruction in the classroom, and being an online adjunct faculty member I got to experience, you know, discussion rooms online and Haiku and Canvas and other like platforms that would work well. So when we went to online school, I I felt like I kind of hit the ground running. You know, I'm like, okay, guys, here's the electronic work. Here's the platform we're going to communicate with. Here's the we're going to do a weekly flip grid discussion or we're going to do Zoom. Like we had used Zoom extensively at Cal State Fullerton online program. So it, it went well. It went well. So I think the the technical and the logistical side of it flowed pretty uh, seamless. I think where issues are coming up are where like the uncertainty, you know, early in March, we didn't know if we were going back end of April, May. Now school said, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to be out for the whole year, rest of the school year. And I think now our issues are with grading. And what are we going to do about grading? Because one of the biggest issues I'm seeing, I'm sure we're going to talk more about that later, is that we we call the kids, we call them MIA, missing in action. (laughs) Military (laughs) They're gone. (laughs) They're gone. And I hope, you know, I teach three classes of juniors and two classes of freshmen. And in each of my junior class, I got about one or two juniors who disappeared. But in my freshman class, I got large numbers of juniors who have disappeared and as a school and a community, we're doing a lot to try, try to call them and reach out to them and email them and call their parents. But there's there's some technical obstacles right now we're seeing trying to get everyone involved. So one of the biggest takeaways that I'm seeing from all this is that there's definitely a heightened inequality in access to education right now yeah. that I think poor communities and, and minority communities are struggling where, where my own children they're, they they hit the ground running too, and their schools on their yeah. schools doing really well, and and everything. Did your well school them, so. do anything to help provide devices for people for students who yes, may not have the, had them? The high school where I worked at, they had two distribution days where students were allowed mm. to come in and check out a Chromebook, and but, th- like for like Wi-Fi pucks and stuff too, or not. I think the first time we did that, we were just passing out Chromebooks, mm-hmm. but then they were talking about trying to teach parents how to make their phone hotspots or have different hotspots in the community because yeah. you can give a family a Chromebook, but 
they still have to log on to the internet. And I've talked to different friends too. My one friend down the street, he's trying to have conference calls with work and his three kids are all trying to do Zoom and he's getting kicked off his conference calls. So there's an issue of bandwidth and internet accessibility. And another issue I talk about with my friends is that, you know, for schools, whenever my kid's school says, we need donations, we need money for the teacher, we need this and and, but it's only voluntary. You don't have to give. You don't have to give because it's, you know, schools can't ask for money. Right. But right. now we're telling you, if you want to have, have an education right now, you better pay and get the Internet. And that's easier said than done for many people. Yeah. And I think there's many legal ramifications that are going to be coming out about that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's been some um, discussion around whether or not the Internet should be categorized as like a utility like water and electricity because it is so necessary as far as education goes. Absolutely. I think it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, hold ahead. Um, can you, uh, along with that, because you, um, one of the things that I was reading was your philosophy of education, which is pretty in-depth. Um, but right before that, can you share with us what your background um, and what we may call your unique experiences as a as a child within within school so as i shared before when my dad you know my dad just turned 80 two days ago and awesome we got the kids all with their gloves and their face mask and we went over there to drop off some (laughs) treats but my dad's my hero because him and my mom came here from ecuador in 1970 they didn't have any financial means they didn't speak the language you know fortunately my dad was educated in ecuador as an engineer and he uh, continued his schooling here. And if you talk about the epitome of hard work, it's my dad. And so struggle, struggle, struggle. One day he lands a job at a company called Floor, and that would define the course of our life. And with that company, and I te- when I teach history in my classes, I talk about, okay, uh, in 1976, I was four years old, and my dad was working on the Alaskan pipeline to get oil out of Alaska. And then in 1977, when I was five years old, we went to Iran. Iran, which wow. is crazy if you think about it now. And it, yeah. was Ameri- it was an American school. But again, I teach this in history. Like the CIA helped put the Shah in power in the 50s. And the Shah had been in power, you know, until 78, 79. And we were there in 77. I don't have too many memories of it. I remember my brothers and sisters and I, we tried to set up our own little home market bazaar. To sell things and that's cute. But I remember it was an American school, and then we came to Los Angeles in first and second grade, and then in third and fourth we went to Venezuela, which mm. was absolutely amazing. It was beautiful. We lived in a beach town. I remember we'd get giant shrimp, super cheap, <laughs> and the school was half American and half Venezuelan. So I actually know the Venezuelan national anthem because we went outside and sang it every day. But because we spoke Spanish, we got to really know the locals, yeah. and that was just an amazing experience as well so you know getting going back to your to your philosophy of education did that did that change over over time and if and if so how um and then also where where are you now with regards to your your philosophy i think my philosophy changed you know i think my main philosophy right now is that school has to be fun and school has to be engaging and you know, when it, it was hard for me when I went from elementary school to high school because the kids are six foot two, 200 pounds. <laughs> and, but if one thing I've learned, it's like that six foot kid 
he's he's almost like a 10 or 12 year old inside you know Mm -hmm. he wants the teacher to respect him he wants the teacher to like him he wants his classmates to like him and when i do speaking presentations i talk about one of my former students i really love this kid his name was roberto he's he was that six foot two 200 pound kid and he sat in the back of my class because he wouldn't do his work and he wouldn't talk and one day he came in totally devastated and distraught and i went up to him and i said hey buddy what's going on he's like my science teacher doesn't like me and I'm like, well, how do you know? And he's like, if she said, Roberto, I don't like you. Aww. And yeah. that story just breaks my heart because A, obviously she should not say that. B, he was a challenging student, you know, and but we're the adults, we get paid, we have a moral responsibility to as no matter how hard a student is or how much they drive you crazy or how irresponsible you are, your job is a psychological job to lift up their ego and take care of them and make sure they have the resources to be successful in class. Yeah. So, and not damage their self-esteem in the process. And it's sad that we have to talk about this, but we, I mean, it, it's, I think it's an issue, you know, kids, kids are fragile. High school kids are fragile. Little kids are mm-hmm. fragile. Adults. When I was a principal adult, I found out adults are fragile and we all <laughs> need positive reinforcement Yeah. and we all need to be treated with respect. And if you want someone to work for you and do their best, like, um, they don't have to like you and you don't have to be their friend, but they have to know that you respect them and you value them. And mm-hmm. that goes from K higher ed to that goes for everybody. That goes for everybody. So there's something that you tell your students every day on the first day of school. Do you care to share that? Yeah. Uh, I've become more of an LGBT advocate as the years have progressed. And, you know, I see kids, and I'm grateful now that in today's times that kids are kids are so much more accepting of each mm-hmm. other. And I think about when I went to high school and I was actually supposed to have my 30-year reunion this summer, but we weren't that very, you know, friendly and open, accepting to people of different, yeah. you know, uh, orientations. But kids are. And I tell them, I said, you know what? The rule can be cruel, but inside these four walls of this classroom... Every single person is going to be treated with the highest levels of respect. And I don't care if someone for your reading ability, what you're wearing, how you're dressed, your orientation, anything. You treat everyone with the highest levels of respect in this classroom and everyone's accepted and welcome and their opinion is valued. And if you don't do your homework, you might have a talk with me. But if you disrespect or bully somebody, you know, we're going to have a major problem. Yeah. And I've had kids share with me that like from the first day, they said, thank you. Mm. I said, thank you. You know, I wish everyone treated us like this or made, set the tone like this for us. But, you know, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And it meant a lot to me as a teacher to make sure they felt welcome. All students were welcome. Yeah, I mean, it's really key to have that foundation of respect both ways. You know, you want them to respect you. You need to respect them. And they'll give you their best if they feel like you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that you that you mentioned Okay, right before you you were you were talking about this. So you were a principal. Um, what? Sorry, what brought you to be <laughs> to become a to become a principal? And um, and then then also what what we've learned was that you've that you've also taught in higher ed, fifth grade, and high school. So it's a so it's a two prong question. What what brought you to become a principal? And which what do you prefer to do? Okay, I'm not going to lie about when I became a principal. When I was younger, 
you know, I think I kind of succumb to like the belief that we should all work as hard as we can and we should all rise up as far as we can. And I basically, I'm not going to lie, I was like money, wealth, power, respect, title, position. I think that we're kind of, we live in a culture and society that kind of promotes that. Like if you don't do that, then you're lazy. You know, what's wrong with you? So uh, I had gone to graduate school. I had taught fifth grade for nine years. And then I, you know, I, I, I saw my principal in elementary school and everyone loved her. Everybody brought her a smoothie and it seemed like, <laughs> seemed like it was the best job ever. So you went in and, it for uh, the smoothies. Yeah, I thought I was going to get a smoothie every Friday. <laughs> so I had finished my doctorate in educational administration. And I thought, you know, hey, this is a good time. And I think as a Latino minority member, too, I felt I could make a level of change and have, be someone who could be a role model to students in the community. But I... <laughs> I found out pretty fast that you don't get a smoothie every day <laughs> in that job. And, you know, you deal with some really challenging and struggling and uh, pretty serious issues almost on a daily basis. You know, you're dealing with the most challenging students, the most challenging teachers, the most challenging parents. And I think all jobs have a certain level of politics, but as you go up higher and higher, you know, the, the politics get more and more serious and, so I kind of had an epiphany that, you know, life isn't about, you know, having the biggest paycheck or having, you know, everyone do your bidding. And so I, I think it's just more as an adult growing and kind of accepting who I was and what, you know, where my strengths are, what my personality, uh, where I can do the best, uh, best good for the world and what's good for me, too, because I don't want to be overweight and I don't want to lose sleep and I just want to be happy. Was that a hard transition then to go back to teaching from being in administration? In a sense, yes and no. Like one of the things I remember most is I could call the custodian and he could bring me whatever I needed in 10 minutes. Yeah. And now when I call the custodians, they'll say, who are you, teacher of, out of 100? <laughs> and so in a sense, you know, but that's nothing. Like I was happy to, te I teach U.S. history, which I love. And my students are super fun and they keep me young and they, you know, there's, I, I, I miss my students right now. I was really sad that we didn't get to finish the year. Mm -hmm. I also have a section of physical education. Uh, the school needed someone to teach physical education, and I had a credential in teaching physical education. People have this mentality like, oh, PE teachers is a joke. Hmm. Teaching PE no. is not a joke. No. <laughs> teaching PE is hard and challenging, but it could also be really fun and rewarding. And, you know, I think that all of us, even now, and I tell my kids, my, hey, guys, remember the yoga routine we did every Wednesday? Are you eating healthy? Are you sleeping? Are you exercising? Like that will help your mental state and that will help your health benefits. Like, I mean, it's so important that we eat well and, and be healthy and exercise. Especially now more than ever, just because we're oh, so stuck inside and not being able to move freely like we normally would. Exactly. So I didn't get a chance to answer Fred's question about which one I like. Yeah. I think that, at the, you know, I became a fifth grade teacher at, when I was 24 years old. And I did it for nine years. So I think from 24 to 33. And that was the time of my life. You know, I was dating my girlfriend who became my wife later. I became really good friends with the staff. We were all young. We saw these kids grow up. And then ultimately several of the kids that I knew as fifth graders, when I moved to high school, I caught up to them. And they were my students wow. when they were in high school. And I, they're my friends on Facebook now. And several of them got married and had kids and have their own careers. And so, again, part of my teaching philosophy is that, you know, we're not in a factory 
making widgets and we're not making a sale and we're not dealing with billion dollar deals. We're impacting someone's life. Yeah. Like what we do as a teacher, we're, we help determine their course of action and what's mm-hmm. going to happen to them. So that's what one of the things I find most rewarding about teaching. So to answer your question, fifth grade was just a blast from, you know, uh, in my early 20s. Uh, high school right now, I absolutely love high school. I absolutely love high school. When I have a bad day in high school, I'm like, oh, hey, at least a parent didn't scream at you today <laughs> when you were principal. And mm-hmm. I don't know what the future holds. I like to, like, you know, I've been working at Cal State Fullerton and UCI and with other companies doing consulting. And, you know, I'm just happy that I have my health, I have my family. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens. So you awesome. also taught in higher ed. How did that come about? And you've taught at a few different universities in higher ed, too. I taught at Concordia a couple classes for the MSAT. There used to be a test before. Now it's a CSAT, but it used to be the MSAT. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to be a K-6 teacher, you had to pass the MSAT. And I had never done test pre- preparation, but I did, not to toot my horn, but I did pretty well on that test. And Because I love trivia games, and I try out for Jeopardy every year, and <laughs> I'm a good teacher. So one of the people at Concordia asked me, they said, can you come do a review session for teaching the MSAT? So I did the MSAT uh, test prep course at Concordia for a while. And then when I left uh, in 2010, a friend at UCI called me and they said they were desperately needing someone to teach a class on instructional design. And I said, oh, sure, I'll do it. So I went and taught a class. I was there for about five or six years. And that was really fun working at UCI because I taught some undergraduate technology classes and I taught some graduate classes in their master's in technology program. And again, some of the students I've met, I'm still friends with them. We still keep in touch. And I'm also a firm believer that when one door closes, another door opens. Because, you know, when UCI, that position ended, uh, it was within two months I opened my email. And I saw an email from Cal State Fullerton saying, hey, uh, so-and-so referred you to us. Are you interested in coming to work for us? And it was literally like three or four months later. And sure, I'd love to. So I worked at Cal State Fullerton for the last four years in their online educational technology master's program. And I had a great time. and I learned a lot uh, doing that. And we, you know, one, sometimes in a quarter, I'd supervise up to 24 master's students who are teachers implementing a school-wide educational technology program at their school. So it was, it was a great experience to see what people were doing in technology mm-hmm. all around the state. And again, earlier to what I said, where everyone needs support, and mentoring, I mean, again, I thought higher ed would be easy and everyone would do their homework and everyone would, would turn in all their due dates <laughs> on time. And I had kids who had anxiety. I had kids who, people who had, had they lost their parent. Yeah. Their kid was sick. So you have to be flexible and, you know, you have to be flexible and, you know, work with people and just help. You know, what's the ultimate goal is them having to learn and complete the assignment. You know, if they miss a due date here or there, I just, you know, I look at the big picture and, and I still keep in contact with some of my former students mm-hmm. there too. And it's nice to see that they've been successful. And, and it's nice to see the change agents they've become at their school. Right now they're doing really well. You know, all the teachers who hated technology, yeah. they're struggling now. Right. Yeah. Now, now one of the things that you were, you were talking about, and, and I'm, and I'm inter- interested in this because I also taught history um, and can you, can you go? Can you talk about when you were when you went from fifth grade teaching to the high school teaching? Can you talk about some of the some of the projects that that you would do within your within your classes? When you just asked me the question, I just had a flashback to one of the first days. Oh, 
up fifth grade to high school. And again, it, I think it's frightening. I never student taught in fifth grade. And I never student taught in high school, but I just had the certifications and I, I interviewed well and people would say, here's your job. And I'm, I wish I would have had more preparation. But one of the first days teaching uh, high school juniors when I went there in 2005, they were talking and goofing around and I tried, decided to pull out one of my old fifth grade tricks and I said, okay, if you're, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to stop talking, I'm going to write your name on the board. And every, okay. every, every single kid started laughing hysterically. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could have curled up in a little ball and ran out. <laughs> but, but now, but again, you live and learn. And now with a glare from Mr. Vlasicky, I could silence any six foot, you know, junior. <laughs> so as far as like projects, yeah. um, as you know, I'm really big into technology and so I love doing a uh, technology project with my students, incorporating the curriculum standards. And, you know, if you think about what's happening with technology today and what's the power available at your fingertips compared to what, when, we were, when we were in high school, I didn't have the internet. You know, yeah. we had the Apple IIe in sixth grade. But now with, I'm on a MacBook where I have a phone, I could do a video, I could do a screencast, we could do a podcast, we could do recorded interviews, we could do multimedia. There's so much opportunity to allow kids to be creative. And kids, you know, this is, this is the digital generation who grew up on iPads. My own daughters, you know, at three or four years old, they are able to figure out how to navigate an iPad. So I like to have kids work together, collaborate, problem solve. And sometimes I'll give them, you know, a program, a program like Adobe Spark is, is a great program. It's super user-friendly. It's easy to use. And I'll tell kids, I said, okay, here you go. This is what you're doing. Well, what do we do? We'll figure it out. You guys are smart. The three of you or four of you can figure it out. And to see them working together and solving a problem, yeah. that's going to help them in the long run. Because I'm a firm believer to, as well that, and I tell my kids, I, I've also taught uh, seniors economics, and that's a tough class to teach, supply and demand to kids who are three months away from. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell them, I'm like, look, I know you might not remember you know, the new deal or what causes a change in demand on the supply curve or whatever. But you'll remember to be responsible. You'll remember to collaborate. You'll remember to respect other people. Yeah. You'll remember to be outgoing and advocate for yourself and raise your hand. Because as I said, when I, when I interviewed people as a principal, you want you, a Harvard master's degree or a community college degree Whoever interviewed the best and had the most enthusiasm and people skills, that's the person we're going to take. Yeah. So where in school are kids taught to self-advocate, to collaborate? Because one of my biggest issues with my own high school students is like, they want to come, they want to sit in class, they don't want to talk to anyone, they don't want to raise their hand, and they want to get by. And, I'm, and I tell them, like, that's not, this is not the place. Because my job is to prepare you for the future. And those skills are going to help. Yeah. And I think that it is changing. I think we're just kind of at the edge right now. You're probably getting the tail end of those students who aren't being required to do those four C's, right? Like the communication, collaboration um, stuff. And so we are, as educators, and even like our standards are requiring students to do more of that because that is what we're saying are the the skills and the tools of the jobs that exist or that will exist. And like you said, like they're not going to, 
be able to regurgitate facts or remember dates and years or whatever. And that's not important because we have the Google machine for that. So, you know, like who cares? But if you can't work with other people, if you can't get along with other people, if you can't, like you said, advocate for yourself, you're not going to be very successful out in the world. I taught AP U.S. history for a few years. And I would have like the second ranked students in my class or like this in the top 10 straight A kids, 4.5 or higher GPA, but they would be the shyest person in the class and they would never raise their hand. I mean, they were a robot scholar and they could remember the book like anything, but I would talk and I said, look, you gotta, you gotta be able to interview. You gotta be able to lead. Like you have a gift, but you're not using it. You can't, you can't just come and not be involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with with regards to what's to what's going going on now, Bodhid, um, you were. It, it seems like for teachers, kind of like you, who have who have uh, a lot of tech background, going going from a face to face class to an to an online class is very seamless. How are your colleagues doing? I think with anything, like some colleagues are doing really well, and other colleagues are struggling, and I. <laughs> I don't want to throw my wife under the bus. <laughs> you just but you're did. going to. <laughs> I'm going to. But, but her experience gives me an, uh, a window to see what teachers are doing too. She loved my wife to death. Like I said, we met at Concordia eight, you know, 20 years ago. I've been married for 18 years. Uh, she's really, really struggling with technology. And for what, here's another thing that helps me learn things. It's like, what comes easy for us? Open up a Zoom, log on, go on. Right. Go on. right. Share the screen. <laughs> uh, for her, that's not an easy process. And she doesn't know where to log in or she doesn't know what button to click. She doesn't know how to manage participants. And that's just Zoom. And now we have her doing two or three other programs that she never received training on and that she needs to practice the skills. And she, I really feel for those teachers who were just thrown, they were just thrown in the deep end. And their job changed overnight. Yeah. And I don't want to, in a sense, it's unfair to them. And it's unfair to their students that we can't keep the status quo going when they don't have the technical knowledge or experience to, to continue. And like I said, it's very hard for some people. So uh, we've been working together. We got her on Zoom. We got her on, I've learned a lot about Seesaw. And uh, mostly learn about patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that patience piece is, is key for everyone right now. And not patience with your students, but patience with yourself. And giving point. yourself yeah. some, some time to adjust to this. Like you and I are, and Fred, we're all, you know, we've been teaching online for years. So it's not that much of a change for us, but for people who have used a tool here and there um, for them to have these expectations to be at, you know, our level. Um, it's unrealistic. So they just like your wife, just tell her to be kind to herself and be patient with herself and just take one thing, just take one thing and dedicate the week to implement that. And then if you feel good about it, then move on to a different thing next week. She's doing really great right now, for the record. I don't want to. Yeah. And she's got her posters all up behind me, and she's doing Zoom with her students, and she's she's learned a lot in a short amount of time. That's so good. Really- yeah. So, so one of the things that um, I've been I've been talking to some, a lot of my teacher and um, monkey muck academic 
people, <laughs> friends about. Um, I would I would like to get your your take. Um, obviously, well, I I don't I don't want to say obviously because given our history here in education, um, if if things are going to change within within education um, due due to what's taking place now, what what do you think will will change? And then secondly. What do you think, if if anything, should change? That's a really great question, Fred. And, you know, ironically, right before this whole thing happened, I was, because I've been teaching high school for 10 years, and there were some days where I was thinking, I'm like, I'm doing the same lecture three times back to back to back. I wonder if there's a way I could do that lecture once or just have the kids in there once. And then I was also thinking, I'm like, isn't it a weird system that the kids have U.S. history from 11 to 12 every single day, Monday through Friday? Like, that's the only time they can learn U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And, it, and then all of a sudden this happened. And we're finding out, hey, you don't have to learn U.S. history from 11 to 12 every day. You can learn U.S. history from 10 to 11 at night if it suits you. Uh, so I think there's definitely going to be change. I think what, you know, I actually really hope that we kind of go back to the traditional, you know, we're in class from eight to two thirty because what I'm seeing and from students that I've talked to, yes, they have a curriculum access. Yes, they have zoom. Yes, they have their materials, but you know what they don't have? They don't have their classmates with them yep. and they don't have their teacher in front of them every single day asking them questions, holding them accountable, mm-hmm. uh, asking them where the work is, because I've talked to several students and the students are struggling. You know, they're struggling, not just doing the work. They're also struggling to maintain a schedule and maintain like a sense of normalcy. And I had a conversation with one of my students. We had a Zoom session last week. And they, I'm like, what does your schedule look like? Because I'm neurotic and I get up and I, I, lo- I need order and structure in my life. You know, and so I'll still work from eight to two, eight to three and take an hour lunch. But kids are, you know, a couple of teenagers were telling me that they, they're up till two or three in the morning. Wow. They sleep until one or two and <laughs> then they watch wow. video games or TikTok. And I'm like, well, when does school happen? Uh, we'll get to those. We'll get to that. You know, the promise. But many of them might not have the organizational skills or the structure or maybe their parents you know, I'm really worried about the community where I work because I work in a low-income community and, you know, obviously the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry is struggling and, you know, we're blessed right now with our teaching profession that still have, you know, yeah. a stable paycheck coming in. But, you know, if you're, a, I think back, you know, to 1974, you know, if my dad lost his job and he had four kids and we were living in a little apartment, what's going to happen? He can't help us with all our homework and, our main worry is to pay the bills and get food on the table. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is a really, really tough, challenging time that we're all in right now. I noticed you shared on your Twitter, I believe, a schedule on Google Docs, um, a recommended schedule for your students to help them with this. Did you see a need and then create it or did a student actually ask for it or how did that come about? And then I know you said, use it people. If you want to, I have other educators reached out to you and said, wow, this is amazing. I want to use it. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Malia, uh, true story. I had a student, there's a student in my class 
And I've had her for two years and I really respect her. I really like her, but she's got a tough home situation. She drives me nuts some days and other days, you know, I'm really proud of her. Uh, but she basically sent me an email. She hadn't been responding and I sent her an email and I said, what's going on? And she basically shared, it's too much. I can't do it. I have no one to help me. I'm going to drop out of high school at 16. And that literally broke my heart mm-hmm. and I couldn't sleep that night. And I'm like, we're not going to fail her. Like, I don't mean fail given like, I mean, yeah. fail her as a, as a community mm-hmm. and as in a system, like we can't, whatever is in place right now is not working for her. Right. So kind of like in a half dream, I'm like, what can I do to help her? I came up with, you know, okay, let's make a chart that you can see with all your classes, your teachers, their emails, because you better be emailing them and ask them about their policy, all the missing assignments you have. I also came up with a daily schedule. And I told the kids, I don't care what your daily schedule is. If you want to stay up till three in the morning playing video games, that's fine. But when you wake up at one or two in the afternoon, can you give yourself four to four, four hours maybe of doing schoolwork that you just lock in yep. and you have to do it? Otherwise, you're going to fall into a hole that you won't be able to get out of. Mm-hmm. And then the third part was a calendar that, I'm, again, I'm a visual person. I need to see if you high school kids tend to be procrastinators. Even the AP kids were super procrastinators. If something's due on Monday, they'll do it. On, they'll start it at like 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday. And again, I'm neurotic. If I have a project due on Monday that's huge, I'm going to do a little bit every day, 20 minutes on Monday, 20 minutes on Tuesday, 20 minutes, because I stick. I have to stick to a schedule. I can't mm-hmm. operate in such pressure and chaos. But I again, it's like the technology. It's like what works for me and what, those skills that I learned, that doesn't come natural for everybody. So with this calendar, they're able to input their assignments and break it down. And with Google Docs, they can link the assignments. So for two or three of my students, I basically made those for them. I had them fill it out. And now I check it two or three times a day. And I basically am on them. I'm like, I basically want to tell them, if you want me to be your dad, I'll be your dad. Yeah. Okay. Because I'll check your work because we're, we're not going to fail. You're not going to drop out of high school. Hmm. Yeah. And I think another lens I want to talk about is also from a parent perspective. So I'm a parent. You know, I have two daughters. Uh, they're in fifth grade and they're in third grade. And uh, one of them struggles to be organized. <laughs> and she likes to take two-hour recesses. And so we have to make a schedule. And that schedule, it helps her and it helps me. And there's a lot less conflict in the house because one of this thing with distance learning is, yes, it's hard for the teachers. Yes, it's hard for the students. But I know a lot of moms in my neighborhood who are drinking a lot because <laughs> of the struggles they're having yeah. with their own teens. And I think that goes back to like every like educator or friend's parent or doctor has said, your kids are wonderful or amazing. And I say, well, you haven't seen them, you know, go at it or be, mm-hmm. you know, struggle. So they, kids are normally not like that with their parents. And so now we're teaching them the old math that they're conflicts with the math that they're oh, yeah. about them. Yeah. Forget about it, you know? So I'm also kind of a big fan. Like, can we have like a conflict free day? And if all the math problems don't get done today, Hey, there's always tomorrow where we could do some of the math problems. I like that. I like that a lot. It's a lot of really good ideas. Um, you mentioned earlier, so I'm going to change directions of this conversation a little bit that your parents are immigrants. And so I wanted to just hear a little bit about how that experience and your parents' experience 
um, how you use that or harness that to relate to your own students. I'm going to try to talk about this without getting choked up. Uh, so like I said, my mom and dad came here. My dad worked really hard. Uh, my dad was an engineer and my mom, she tried to go to community college, but she couldn't. So she ended up taking jobs like at McDonald's or she was an in-duty supervisor at my school when I was in elementary. And I'll never forget the kids who would make fun of her. We mm -hmm. saw your mom picking up our trash or your mom talks funny on the playground. And, you know, that just devastated me till this day. Yeah. And so, but my mom and dad are the hardest workers and they taught us the value of education. But, you know, I'd say I grew up in South Orange County and, and like I said, I'm not, I call my, I consider myself Latino. My parents are my girl, but in South Orange County in the 80s, I thought I was white. <laughs> All my friends were white, and it was never a factor. And that's, that's what I knew what I grew up with. But when I went to college, I kind of struggled to fit in because we don't talk about race, and we don't talk about skin color, and we don't talk about the perceptions people have. And I share a story that happened a couple of years ago that my wife and I went to a nice restaurant in Newport Beach, and after we had our meal, we went, to, uh, she had to go to the restroom. So I was standing out front and I was wearing uh, nicer clothes. And a woman came up to me and threw her keys at me and said, go park my car. <laughs> and I just looked at her and I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm not the valet. And You're like, I'm Dr. Velasquez geek. Uh, can I help you? <laughs> oh, well, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> I just think that, you know, you can get mad. I'm past getting mad. You can get mad. But people, it's human nature that people make assumptions and people see you and people make assumptions on who you are based on what you look like. That's the foundation of racism or mild yeah. racism or the problems we've had in our society. So I think that, yeah, that's how, that's really bothered me growing up. And mm -hmm. I think that, I consider myself so blessed, so, so blessed. Like I said, I talked to my dad on his 80th birthday, and I basically said, all the success I have, I have a doctorate, I have a family, I have a house, I have a career. Everything I have is because, you know, he yelled at me to do my math homework in eighth grade the right way. And he <laughs> told me that school was important, and, and I got in trouble if I got a C. And if, but if he stayed in Ecuador, or if he just let me do, if he didn't care about my grades, like I wonder about the person I'd be or the life I would have. Yeah today so I think for many kids in the communities of color that they maybe don't have they're not they don't have they weren't fortunate they don't have that parent or that social capital to help you know light a fire in the, under them or guide them so not to be grandiose or get a hero complex but I but in all honesty that's what we teachers do that's yeah. what we teachers do and that's that's the position we serve and you know, yes, I have a doctorate from UCI. And when I first got it, I got my doctorate when I was 35 years old. And I was very arrogant when I was 35. And I'm Dr. Velastigi, and everybody called me Dr. Velastigi. And, 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 you know, I realized that that's not important, how you refer to. And, you know, other teachers were resentful. And though teachers would make fun of me and say, hey, I have a, my arm hurts, doctor. <laughs> doctor, can you help me? Yeah. But when I was a principal, I had an incident that I wanted to talk about. I had a fellow colleague who was a principal because I called, I never told students to call me Dr. Velasquez. But when I was a principal at a 99% low income Latino school, I had the parents call me Dr. Velasquez. And for the sole reason 
that there's a child of color in poverty who saw the school leader and said, hey, that guy looks like me. Yeah. That's the only reason. But yeah. again, there's politics and organizations. I, did, I had some pushback and someone asked me, you know, someone, a colleague said, you know, I think, I don't think you should be referring to yourself in that way. And that puts a distance between you and people. And I'm like, that's not the intent. And it's not that I consider myself better than anybody. You know, I liked school and I finished my program, but you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, people would think that there's an alternative agenda. But there is a distance when we make our students call us miss or missus or mister, that's the distance. So your earned correct title is doctor. And I, I support that. I think that that's a great idea. Um, I did spend some time in your classroom, and I noticed that you had pictures of multicultural leaders and innovators and people in history around your classroom. And I think that that's really important to be sending that message to your students that, see, these people look like you, and you can also be amazing like this. And um, I I think that's a good message to leave with your students. Well, for my daughters, too. I mm-hmm. consider myself a radical feminist. I yes. Them. You know, I love to hear that. I love when men say that they're radical feminists because all that means is that you just want equality for everyone. It doesn't mean <laughs> that negative thing that people yeah. think that it does. It just means you want equality yeah. for all people. So Correct. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Jorge, we do end our sessions with um, asking our guests what their call to action is, and that just means like the one thing that perhaps you want teachers or future teachers to take away from you from listening to this. So do you have something that you would consider your call to action? Sure. How much time do I have left? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. How Uh, much time you need? (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed, but I like to talk. And last year, my fifth period class discovered my kryptonite. One kid figured out that's at the beginning of the class that you said, Mr. Velastigi, tell us a story. Yeah. For a long time. And, because I have tons of stories. But as far as my call to action, I do want to share a short story. Great. The, and whenever I tell a story, I say the year was, and kids will call me and say, you didn't say what the year was. <laughs> okay. So the year was 1995. I was 23 years old, 24 years old. I was working at an insurance company as a, claim, a homeowner's claim adjuster. Ooh. And again, a horrible job. You know, people were us with me all the time and people wanted their money and it was just a really, really tough job. So I went to Costa Rica for two weeks by myself in the summer of 95. And it was really, it was something I, I mean, I was kind of a sheltered boy and it's kind of a big deal to travel around, you know, by myself. And so, but that trip changed my life. It opened me uh, to new perspectives. I met different people from Australia and from East coast and, you know, traveling is such an amazing part of growth experience and, making friends with people who are, you know, hey, you want to go surfing in this field? Hey, do you want to share a hotel room over here? And so it was so cool. And then I was trying to go to this one village called Montezuma on the east coast of Costa Rica, and I had to take the bus. And this bus stopped at this little village because the two, it was two tractors blocked the one road into the town. So we had to stop. And and I asked someone what happened, and they said, well, the bank, the village is on strength because the bank isn't giving their money or something happened. But so I stayed in this little hole in the wall, the scariest little motel room I've ever seen in the third world country. I stayed in there for one night by myself. And I basically, this is a true story. I said, Hey, if I died here, no one would ever know where I am. 
And also if I died here, what did I do for the world? Hmm. How did I help the world? And I woke up and I said, I cannot be an insurance adjuster anymore with my life. I want to go work with kids. I want to make a difference. I want to help people. So I came back. I told my boss I quit my job. I talked to my dad. I said, I quit my job. He was very upset with me. He's like, how can you give up your salary, your $36,000 a year salary? Hmm. I said, dad, I got to do something different. I got to do something important. Uh, so I became a teacher. And like I said, four months later, I met my wife. I went to Concordia. Five months after that, I got thrown into a classroom with four, five, six combo. And I've been in that district for 24 amazing years. Wow. You know, my call to action is be that role model, be kind, be empathetic, be firm, have high expectations, understand them, sympathize, but challenge them. And basically, just don't be a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Jorge, thank you so much for sharing all of your great stories uh, today. All thanks, of the great Jorge. work that you're doing with um, your students and with your wife and your kids, your daughters, and being a hardcore feminist. I love that. So thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much.